winter. Hello and welcome to the 11th of these podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gomatra. I'm Alistair Sanchel, I live outside of Dervig on the north end of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I do something slightly different. I talk to Dr. Claire Ellis of Argyle Archaeology about the archaeology of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gomatra. Claire, uh, I first met working on a community project in the Ross of Mull with the Ross of Mull Historical Society and I was very impressed by the way that she engaged with the community and got them excited about the work of an archaeologist. She talks so brilliantly about the past and the land and all that's hidden below the soil and all that's on top of the soil. I thought it would be fantastic to talk to her. So uh, I managed to get hold of Claire and we spoke via Skype. Claire lives uh, in the Kintyre Peninsula and uh, I am working in Harris at the moment, just about to head off to Lewis. And so I re-recorded this from my hotel room here in Harris and Claire's home in the Kintyre Peninsula. We talk about a whole host of subjects. We talk about digs on Mull, Iona, and less more, and Claire's choices to go into archaeology. I also make a mistake because I am a fud. Uh, I mentioned The Sea Road by Alistair Moffat at one point in this. That book doesn't exist. The book is The Sea Kingdoms by Alistair Moffat. I'll put a link into the um, webpage if you want to see it at all. It's a really good book. I recommend it very strongly. Anyway, without further ado, here's Claire. Could you introduce yourself for the listener? Who are you? Right, my name's Claire Ellis, and um, I'm an archaeologist um, based in Argyle, and I run a little company called Argyle Archaeology. And what what do you do with Argyle Archaeology? What's is it? Um, you're a consultant archaeologist, aren't you? Yeah. So basically, um, uh, if somebody applies a plan of permission for a house or like a whole, you know, scheme of housing, or sometimes like a road scheme. Um, any sort of development that needs planning permission, often they'll um, have an archaeological condition attached to their planning. And yes. basically, I'm one of the people, there's numerous people that throughout Scotland, but I'm one of those people that can, um, you know, sort of purge that condition for them. So I can go in and um, basically sort out the archaeology, which usually involves digging it, recording it, and then eventually getting it published. Um, so that's my main my main work, but I also do quite a bit of community archaeology. Um, Fantastic, which is more fun, really. But it's harder. I think it's hard work, and it's difficult getting the funding. It's very difficult getting the funding. So yes, definitely. I mean, that's how we first met. We were uh, met working for Ross of Mull Historical Centre, didn't we? With them, um, it was uh, Sul Er Arthiovic was the name of the project. Yeah. Um, what, what could we say about the project for, for well, to expanding that? That, that, well, that was quite a good um, uh, wee project. It was, they had, I think it was Heritage Lottery funding, and um, um, basically it was just a week. We were out in the field for a week um, doing what's called a walkover survey, where basically you walk, you try and walk every sort of inch of the land of a given area, and you record all the archaeology you can see from the surface, um, and you record it um, in, in a written record, but also um, take photographs of it. And then you also take a GPS location and it builds up a picture of sort of past land use, really. And um, it also then will give you a bit of a clue as to what may be potentially hidden beneath, you know, the soil as well. So um, it's a really good thing to do. And again, we do that quite often um, commercially in front of um, new forest planting. All right. okay. So if a new forest is going to get planted, which, you know, current government are very keen on because of um, trying to reduce carbon footprint, 
Um, yes. An area of land has to be walked and all the archaeology recorded and then it gets sort of avoided when the forest gets planted. So at least you're not destroying anything that's visible. Significant. Yeah. 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 And that's when we were talking uh, back then. That that sounded like such a lovely thing because you had a companion that, that joined you in most of that work as well, didn't you? Oh, Archie, the dog. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, um, yes. Good old Archie. He comes on all walkover surveys with me, so he's he's a very good little companion. Yeah. <laughs> what age is Archie now? Thirteen. Oh my goodness! Yeah. And still going strong. He's still well, he's getting quite stiff, but he still come. He can walk. He, he can't really run much now, but I could be out all day with him. and He's still fine. So. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's absolutely wonderful. So, um, th- in terms of the consultant archaeology stuff, what's would you say uh, is most of the work? Is it done through private contract or is it for like councils and and uh, housing uh, associations and things like that? Um, the bigger schemes tend to be housing associations, but they will get the main contractor or the planning consultant to sort of you know or the architect. They generally sort of send out the tenders or ask for the quotes. Um, yes. And then smaller scale stuff, people just either presumably ask their architect or whoever's helping them build their house. And often, you know, individuals will contact me and just say, you know, can you give us a quote? And we go from there, really. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You mentioned there that uh, the results are published. Where are the results of, of such a survey published? Right. Um, usually um, on the internet there's a thing called oasis they get put on there but that takes quite a long time to come out Mm -hmm. and then um the archive will get put into the um it's it's historic environment scotland that used to be the royal commission in edinburgh yeah yeah so it gets put in there and then once a year um discovery and excavation scotland is a a publication and all archaeological work that's taking place in scotland gets published in there as a summary cool um and then if it's a really nice site eventually hopefully it'll get published like ballascape we actually published that um is Scotland's what's it called Scottish Archaeological Internet Report so that's free for anybody to actually download so cool I'm going to take a note of that thank you Uh, internet report Uh, report that's brilliant yeah um, so I guess um, if we can maybe circle around the islands of Mull, Iona, Ulva and Gometra and say a little bit and then we'll get finer and closer in what is it about Argyllshire that makes the archaeology around here interesting do you think um well, one of the things which is quite exciting is it's not that developed, Argyle, which means stuff survives. Yeah. It's not really been looked at either because there's no development or very little development. Not a lot of archaeological work's happened. Um, or if it has, it's very much university-based and very much targeted on dunes or, um, mm-hmm. you know, on the, or the outer, outer aisles on Mesolithic stuff. But so the yeah. day-to-day archaeology, until fairly recently, has not really been looked at because there's been no development. But it means that actually when you go and look, you often find stuff because it's still there. It's It survives. Um, that's brilliant. So, that, you know, that's that's why our is really good. And you get a whole range of material right from the Mesolithic right through to early modern stuff. You know, you get, you get everything, really. So um, Mesolithic, Stone Age, early modern, what, what do we classify early modern as? Early modern, um, 18th, 19th century. Um, so... It used to be, again, when I first started out many years ago in archaeology, we didn't even record that stuff. It wasn't, really? Yeah, it wasn't deemed important at all. And now it's actually it's deemed important we record it, yeah. 
Um, yeah. But yeah, no, in the past, we, we were just like, 19th century stuff, don't care about that at all. Um, you know, <laughs> we just ignore it. So yeah. It's fixed, stomp, stomp, stomp. <laughs> fashion, yeah, fashion's change and priorities change in archaeology. Um, I think it was sort of before the 70s, um, all archaeological work was funded by the government. And yep, then yes. um, they obviously couldn't afford it anymore. So the, the, the thing is now the developer pays. And because somebody else is yeah. paying for it now, um, things like 19th century stuff, there's a sort of justification that it can be recorded and money spent on it um, because, you know, the, the developer is paying for it. So it gets done now. And do you have a sort of preference of, of uh, interest yourself? Or there, is there any specific era or period or area of uh, archaeology that you're interested in? I love prehistoric stuff. So before mm. written records, which actually, funnily in Argyle, is most of the history of Argyle because um, the written records are very poor for Argyle. But so, yeah, yeah I like sort of um, Bronze Age, um, the Bronze Age. The, so the Bronze Age is about 4,000 years ago. Um, yeah. And the Iron Age is about 2,000 years ago. So that's sort of early sort of mid-prehistoric periods, really, I think, is my favourite. But actually, anything you find that you've not seen before and you're probably the first person to see it for hundreds or thousands of years is pretty exciting, whatever age it is, really. Uh, it's, that is the dream, isn't it? That, uh, yeah, the sort of Indiana Jones dream of, my goodness, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so as, as a child, was archaeology something that you were kind of like, oh, yeah, this is what I really want, really want to do? Or were you into wanting to be a lawyer? Or what was it that made archaeology um, appeal to you? Um, I don't think it did. Um, <laughs> my, my, my mother taught um, history of art. So we used to get, right. I used to get sort of taken around all, lots of classical sites abroad and museums and things all, all through my childhood. But that, yes. I mean, I didn't, you know, I enjoyed it, but I never thought, oh, this is what I want to do. And I was really into geology, actually. I love geology. So I went off to mm. university, but I, had the, I went to a, um, a Steiner school, so I had a strange combination of A-levels. So I couldn't do, <laughs> couldn't do straight geology. So I had to do yeah. joint honours archaeology and geology. And then at university found, actually, I enjoyed the archaeology much more than the geology. So I sort of fell into it, really. That's fantastic. And you did your doctorate on, um, what was it you did your doctorate on again? Archaeomagnetism. What's archaeomagnetism? It sounds like a, he- a, a super, superhero from He-Man or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a very dodgy dating technique where basically, <laughs> it's not that, it works sometimes, but um, basically um, magnetic minerals within, I did it with sediments, it was even more dodgy than normal. Um, magnetic <laughs> minerals within sediments align to the um, magnetic field All right, and okay. that magnetic field changes subtly with time so if you yes. imagine you have a graph of the changes and then you measure your sample you can match it to that graph and gives you a date so that's how um, traditionally it's used in hearths and, think- and things and it works quite well there because you've got a really high temperature that makes yes. sure that your magnetism is well aligned Whereas in sediments is a bit more dodgy. So basically, yeah, it's a dodgy dating technique, but it was a means to an end, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And what first drew you to Argyllshire? What was it that brought you up here? Um, well, I was in Edinburgh working for um, archaeology company in Edinburgh, and actually, my mum, who and dad were living in Cornwall, my mum decided that she didn't see enough of me and had to come up and live in Scotland. That's lovely. And they saw a house down here in Campbelltown. And oh, nice. um, so they moved over, and I was still in Edinburgh. And then um, 
about I think about a year later I came over. Yeah. Superb. And are they still there in Campbellton as well? Well, my mum died a few years ago, but my dad's still here. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. So right. he lives next door, so that's quite good. So he's a, oh, that's he's a good brilliant. dog sitter. Perfect. Yes, that's uh, yeah. That, we have uh, our in-laws live uh, next door, and that's quite useful as, <laughs> as well. So, we've got the sense of our girl, the the the, the age of of, uh, of of the archaeology that's here. Let's find, refine it a bit more into to Mull and Iona. What is it about Mull, Iona, Ulva, and Gometra that is interesting in terms of archaeology? Well, I think uh, from my experience. Um, it's quite diverse. I mean, obviously, I only go and dig the bits that either I get asked to do if somebody's developing in a house and it's got archaeology nearby, so they get an archaeological condition. And yeah. more often than not, don't find anything or just a couple of things and um, that's it. Um, but sometimes you do find things like, for example, uh, um, Kilninian, which is near um, Ulva. Uh, yeah. um, we had a fantastic site there. It was a a guy was wanting to build a house and they had a 19th century farmstead and he wanted to convert the ruin of a barn into mm -hmm. basically knock it down and build his house on that area, which normally, brilliant, did a bit of a building recording and then what was called a watching brief. Um, uh -huh. and that, What's a watching brief? watching brief is where basically machine comes in, strips the soil and I'm there watching it and if I see archaeology then I can stop the machine and deal with the archaeology. So we, so we did that and actually found a site, amazingly enough, buried underneath the barn, which dated to the um, second and first century BC. Dated um, to the second or first was, century BC? Yeah. So that, it was Iron Age. That's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing site. And we had a number of halls, we had pits, and we had post holes. Um, and we only got a part portion of it because where. They weren't developing. We didn't dig, obviously. Um, yeah. And that was in the so it's the, it's the first and only um, unenclosed RNA site on Mole to be found and excavated. So normally, wow. normally they're um, dunes or you know sort of fortified settlements and forts yes. or the dunes. So it's it's interesting in that um, respect. But also we got a um, in one of the halves in the ash was a toggle bead, which is. Um, Gosh. Tiny little toggle made of glass, yeah. and um, I'm quite excited by that because I haven't seen anything like that before. And did a bit of research and actually managed to contact a woman at the British Museum. Yeah, um, and we collaborated and got some money together to do some extra work on it. And um, right. basically, she did all her sort of um, very scientific analysis, and the glass had come from the Mediterranean in the form of tiny little fragments of broken glass that were obviously was being recycled this glass it made its way all the way up to scotland probably yeah. through exchange routes you know along the sea um yeah. and i think these toggles only occur on the west coast of scotland and in ireland they don't really occur anywhere else so Gosh. the idea is what we what we sort of concluded was that basically there was a a local or local people um craft people actually getting hold of this glass and actually making the um toggle beads um for the Irish West Coast Scotland um elite, you know, the RNA oh, elite. And they actually the we the toggle we actually got from Kilninian 
when it gets broken off the rod, it, the glass gets put in a, a fire to heat it up, the little fragments, yeah. and they get moulded together. And oh, it's wow. on a little rod to do this. And it actually probably, they accidentally broke it off and it fell in the fire and they didn't find it. They couldn't find it in the ash. So the, 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 it's called a pond where it broke off. Normally that gets ground down and this hadn't yes. been. So that made a sink. Well, it must be therefore made in the fire and lost. And um, That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, it is amazing because basically I think it indicates that there's probably sort of a, a travelling craftsperson or people going around the west coast of Scotland and Ireland yeah. probably showing the elite in their, in their dunes, this is what I can make for you getting a commission, going and staying with the, the, the you know, the, 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 the sort of, um, I don't know, the working class folk in the unfortified open settlement yeah. for accommodation yeah. overnight and using their hearth to make these toggles. So that's a really nice, you know, nice story coming out of something that was actually meant to be a couple of days of work, you know, watching um, a 19th century barn getting demolished. So, yeah, it was great. Absolutely amazing, fantastic. And how did the person that had uh, commissioned it, the, the person that was building the house, how did they feel about it all? Were they quite excited by it too? I think they were quite excited by it, but they were also a bit apprehensive because um, <laughs> they had to pay for radiocarbon dates and they were worried about the cost and things. Um, yeah. You know, and that's always a problem. If you've got a big housing scheme, it's great because nobody's really yeah. terribly worried about the money. If you've got a single house, obviously, you know, having extra money that you didn't, extra costs that you didn't budget for is quite you know it's quite yeah. can be quite galling really so it's it's yeah. difficult for me because you want to find stuff but also you don't want to yeah. you know make people actually have to sort of pay huge amounts of money for the archaeology so it's a delicate balancing game really in terms of the uh, the archaeology on Mull itself. You mentioned Ballasgate a moment or two ago. Can you tell us about the Ballasgate dig that you do? Yes. Or I did, sorry. Yeah, so that was um, a community dig and it was um, um, originally um, Hilda Marsh and I think it was Beverly. They, they were doing, um, there, was a, there was a scheme set up by Royal Commissions um, called Scotland's Rural Past. Yep. Where basically yep. they trained local people to go out and basically map all this 19th century stuff that nobody cared about. So um, Hilda and Bev went off and did that and found Ballasgate and um, got very excited by it because I hadn't, I don't think it was on the database or anything. Mm -hmm. And obviously the forestry people, when they planted the forest, recognised it, didn't actually plant the trees, they plonk on top of it, but right close to it. Um, <laughs> yeah, as close as they could possibly get. Um, yeah. So they got excited about it and... Um, managed to get the Royal Commission to come and have a look at it, who said, well, either it's a farmstead or it's an enclosed chapel site. And um, Hilda being Hilda wanted to know more. So she managed, yeah. managed to persuade the time team to come up. Fantastic, yes. So um, she got time team to come up for three days. And um, Mick Aston actually said yeah. it was his favourite site ever. Um, and it, he... They found what was called a, a left or a locked at the end of a structure in the enclosure, which mm -hmm. um, is basically a rectangular outside altar that you really only get in Ireland. Wow, really? Yeah, so they're really typically Irish things, you know, sort of um, at the end of churches, because these churches and these chapels are very small, so they often have outside yeah. um, ceremonies. Um, yeah. So Mick just thought it was a fantastic site, and then they... 
uh, managed to find um, a couple of burials at the same time, which one of which they got dated to the, I think it was the 7th stroke 8th century AD. So Amazing. they decided that the whole chapel was that period. And so it was an early Christian chapel and got to be excited by it. So based on that, um, Hilda got um, a project together with Heritage Lofty Funding to do Mm -hmm. a big community dig. So we ended up there doing the dig. We were there for 28 days with no days off. So that was quite... Oh, for goodness sake. (laughs) That was hard work. (laughs) But it was was a great site. So we found, basically we found um, a 7th, 8th century cemetery. Um, wow. So it was an early Christian cemetery, and the only bone we had surviving were in head boxes. So when people, What's a head box? Well, when people are buried, they were laid out, mm-hmm. and their heads were protected with a stone either side and one on the top. So it was like a little, oh, yeah, yeah. A little box for the head. And that actually yeah. stopped the, the water penetrating through the, the, um, the skull, um, so the bones survived, whereas the rest of the bodies, you know, all the graves were empty because the bone had been dissolved away so um we managed to get dates from some of the human remains so we knew it was 7th 8th century cemetery and there's still a bit of a debate about ballasgate whether it is actually a chapel site or um even a monastery or is it a farm but Mm -hmm. we the actual structure we dug much more of the structure than time team dug and actually most of that structure there's two phases one was a timber phase and one was a stone and turf phase, but they're both um, 13th, 14th century. So, like, almost okay. a thousand years later than the cemetery. Yeah. So, and we had no burials contemporary with that structure or the enclosure. So, there's, there's still a bit of debate as to whether Ballasgate itself is actually a chapel, even though there's a, a much earlier, early Christian cemetery underneath. Um, so, That's fascinating, yeah. Yeah. Was there something about white stones? I remember seeing the TV programme, they talked about these little white pebbles or sort of like um, um, pilgrimage stones. Was yeah. It, was that, am I right? Yeah. yeah. Well, they're, they're on the on the, on this left at the at the end of the, the structure, which would say to you it must be a Christian site, there were lots and lots of white, rounded white pebbles. And the, the, the story is that um, St. Columba and one of his... Um, um, when he was doing one of his miracle things, he blessed a white pebble. So there's an association with sort of blessing and St. Columba. Um, right. s- um, so that's probably why the white stones got left on the um, altar as a, as a, a sort of pilgrimage thing, really. Really? Right. And the other thing that made us think it was probably a chapel site was we had what's called a bullen stone, which is a huge spacey stone basin. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea was that you might have water in those for baptizing but you also get these big stones for grinding corn in so oh is they are they called quern stones is that there? or knocking stones they're known as knocking stones yeah and they're usually deeper than the bullen stone but you know what makes a knocking stone what makes a bullen stone so um right. the evidence oh, it's difficult because um yeah. I, I i want to make i want to think it's a chapel but inside, yes, the structure, inside the structure, it was full of carbonised cereal grain barley. And it was really mucky. Basically, the floor, the old floor levels were full of ash and burnt um, seeds and broken yeah. pottery and bits of bone and bits of metal. And you were just like, it's all typical of domestic living. 
Yes. So how can it be a chapel? But maybe, you know, it's a small structure and maybe things were different in the past in that there wasn't that distinction that we have now, nowadays between a chapel site being sort of only for that. Secret. Yeah, yeah, only for that use. And maybe yeah. the, 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 the priest actually lived in the chapel. Um, yeah, very possibly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there is this great debate, which is why we then went to Leffin, which is on the Glengorm Estate this year. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Um, which is actually in plan, very similar to Ballasgate. Mm-hmm. So that's why we ended up at Leffin to look at that to see whether um, we can determine whether Leffin's actually a farmstead or an enclosed chapel with burial ground. Because if that is one or the mm-hmm. other, then it's more likely Ballasgate's going to be one or the other as well. So um, that's why we've been led to Leffin this year. And Leffin, when does that itself date from? Is it a similar period? Well, yes, we only we only were there September this year, and we only were there for a week. But um, mm-hmm. we had some it's an amazing site actually. So we're desperately trying to get funding together for next year. Um, but we got massive stone built incl- um, structure, which should be the chapel or the farmhouse, and then mm-hmm. a massive stone enclosure around it. And then inside, we um, got some posts, same as Ballasgate. So basically, they had an internal timber frame that held up the roof. And the walls were just really to stop the wind and rain. They weren't sort of supporting. And then outside, uh, within the structure, we got some nice decorated pottery. Oh, lovely. Very, very similar to what we got Ballasgate. And we had that radio calm dated, the Ballasgate stuff. And it's um, 12th, 13th century. Okay. So that makes Leffin probably be at the same period. Um, and given it's the same in plan, you know, it's not a surprise. Um, and they're only, what, they're only eight miles away from each other, 12 miles away from yeah, each other? Yeah, they're not, like not far away. And there's about, we surveyed, when we were doing Ballascape before we started, we surveyed, I think, five very similar sites. So Leffin was one of those. So there's quite a few of them on Mull. Right. Um, these enclosed chapels and or farmsteads, so... Um, and where where does the kind of pattern for this come from the, in terms of the design of these things? Were they, like you mentioned, um, the west coast of Ireland, the west coast and Ireland being you know common for finding the beads? Is it um, is it just shared practice that oh that's how uh, would, the, would the, the the builders think okay well that's how it's done down the road there we'll do that or would it be the same builders for different things or how, how did it how was the knowledge transferred and the kind of yeah it'd be, it'd be culture yeah it'd be sort of shared culture and. In the past, we Northern Ireland especially and Argyle were kind of often in the same territory. Um, yes. You know, they weren't yeah. the same. So, you know, we're all very much sort of move around now, really, Argyle, mostly on the roads, occasionally by ferry, but mostly it's roads-based. But yeah. in the past, it would all been by sea. So yes. actually yeah. the orientation of Argyle would have been very different from how we, we, we perceive it now. So yeah, you get you get these chapel sites, twelfth century ones, um, built in stone on islet, very very similar. Yes. And the earliest ones apparently have um, west facing entrances, and then later on the entrances change to the north, or, or you know vary a bit. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a tradition that's seen early, quite early, and then goes right through the medieval period. But what we don't have are the early Christian structures. We just don't have them. So the idea is they're built of timber. But, you know, yeah. it would be nice to find one of those. <laughs> oh, indeed, definitely. Um, the, the, the positioning of uh, or our, our 
perception of how we perceive uh, the sea road is very interesting. Alistair Moffat has a great book called The Sea Roads where he talks about the there's a direct line that goes from Norway all the way down to Galicia through Argyllshire, the, sea, the coasts of Argyllshire, with uh, Iona mm-hmm. being kind of the central point between Norway and Galicia. And it's the sort of centre of this, this, this highway, which I find what you're saying about the Mediterranean glass makes a lot of sense within that as well. Do you know what the earliest settlements on Mull are, by any chance? Actually, I'm myself, I'm not sure really what we know of. Certainly, like the work I've done recently on Iona, we've got loads of um, mesolithic lithics, so flints, basically, and yeah. some work, work the quartz. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a little bit was found um, on digs when involved around the you know Iona Abbey in the past. Um, yes, uh-huh. but of my recent work on Iona, we found a huge amount of um, lithic material. And Torben, um, who's a sort of lithic specialist, he's dated it to the eighth, um, seventh millennium BC. So, oh, like, goodness me! Yeah, absolutely. So, like for example, I imagine Mole's pretty similar. It's just I've not actually come across. So I think. There is one, I know of one, uh, I mentioned it in previous podcasts, uh, next door to us at Croy, Stephen Mythen talks about it in his book To the Islands, yeah. uh, and that's, I think they carbon dated that 9,070 years right. ago, yeah. which is insanely long ago, yeah. um, but that's that's absolutely amazing if there's similar things in Iona of a similar period, of course, because they would have been, as I understand it, coastal wanderers, and they would have gone from place to place during the seasons. Yeah, no, absolutely, and... Um... A lot of the stuff on Iona is on the higher terrace, and then the stuff we get, um, we found slightly lower down. A lot of it's water rolled because, um, because of the um, once once the um, ice was gone, um, the 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 land got basically sort of crushed. Um, Isostatic rebound. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, um, some of the earlier stuff, um, really early stuff on Iona. May have been um, sort of pre the the re advance of the ice, um, so that's quite interesting. That we've got water roll stuff, and then, like for example, Goodness. in the Neolithic times, the sea level potentially was about ten meters higher than it is today. Yeah. Um, so that you've you've possibly got folk going around in the sort of ninth millennium, seventh, eighth, ninth millennium, and then the sea level's actually risen um, over the land that they were also using as well. So some of this. This material has been um, rolled around, which is probably why we don't get the sites that much, you know, in terms of wow. structures and 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 horrors and things. Um, yeah, yeah, that's extraordinary. And um, I, I didn't know that at all. Um, in terms of because you, you were able to extrapolate kind of social structures from the glass beads and the, the thoughts of that from the very very early people from the Mesolithic people and the Bronze Age people. Is there any element of kind of um, society or character that comes from these at all that you can extrapolate or is it just so far back that there's just no means of interpretation oh no I think yeah there is because well the idea is certainly a lot, lot with these like um, you get the Neolithic um, burial cairns and the, the, yeah. you know, the idea is that um, there must have been an elite then that, that well, were one buried in these places but also were able to um, um persuade control or have the respect of the local populace who then you know built these things because you know they were massive undertakings so yeah. you, you certainly got social structure and in the bronze age, i think there's an idea that it was less so in the bronze age um really 
um, and it might have been a sort of all a bit more sort of um, equal in that you don't mm-hmm. you do still get some monumental burials, but less so. But um, you still do get the sort of special burial sites for sort of individuals and things. Um, and then certainly in the Iron Age, I think there really there must have been. I think there always has been people who yeah. have and people who don't have, basically. <laughs> Well, indeed, and the lovely um, theory, of a kind of distressing theory, that it's those families that were able to work out what to do with a wheel. Those are the families that are now, you know, where the tobacco barons and are now kind of <laughs> the Jeff Bezos of the world and things like that. It's uh, yeah, it, you know, is the first was the first person that uh, that made the wheel going to be their descendants going to be the first space baron? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Uh, extraordinary. So, um, the. It, would I be right in saying that the the jewel in the crown of Argyllshire, in terms of uh, archaeology, is it Iona? Would Iona be one of the key sites for Argyllshire? Well, you know, oh, it's difficult. It's yeah, Kilmartin's amazing. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> and and Iona is 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 amazing, but it's 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 just because. Um, oh, in terms of the archaeology, it's it's a good island for archaeology. Yeah. Um, in terms of its history, it, it is an important site, but there are yeah. other equally as important sites. It's just because yes. um, um, Adaman he he wrote the, the, the you know the sort of life story hagiography yeah yeah and because um, that's there and for nobody else like say for St Malug on Lismore he's had yes. he's had no one to write his history really so he's yeah. not really known about so and. If you look at um, Lismore, for example, they've got the cathedral there, which is the first yeah. medieval cathedral of Argyll. Yep. Um, potentially, they've got some loose um, early Christian. Crozier. Yeah, they've got the crozier, and they therefore potentially have got the um, the early monastery, which we're currently looking for. We would love to prove oh, it's there. Amazing. Now, if we actually got an early Christian monastery on Lismore, in some ways, it'd actually be as important, if not more important, because of the medieval cathedral than Iona. So, oh, phenomenal. I, Iona's had a good, yeah. you know, it's, it's it's been sold well, I think. <laughs> yes, well, it's yeah, it's got a significant role in the the cultural identity of Scotland and that craft shop at the start of the twentieth century that was creating the the, the, the Celtic designs and uh, yeah, or, or reappropriating the Celtic designs into. Uh, craft and artworks yeah. and that, that, the impact that's had um, I'm hoping to talk to someone about that in the relatively near future actually as well But um, so yeah, I, I want to play a significant role in, in, in Scottish cultural heritage in no two ways about it yeah. so um, when I was, I was talking to Stephen Lee in uh, Iona Primary this morning and he mentioned that uh, when they were doing the preschool dig that you found some interesting things there and, and uh, the, the, the preschool building was halted for, for quite a while while you were uh, looking through through the ground there. Can I, could you say what that was, what happened there, if that's okay? Yeah, so, um, again, it's a bit of a sort of long history to site, but we did some preliminary works before anything happened and found some archaeology. So when the actual um, building works began for the, um, the extension, we, you know, yeah. we had to be there on site. And um, just, I discovered that there was a, um, a massive ditch basically running along the wall line that ran up to the school past the um there's a um nhs building and there's a wall in front of it that wall line continues all the way up in, yeah. into the school basically up to the school wall um and this ditch amazingly enough was on the same orientation underneath and um so we had to excavate it 
And what we found was a really, really quite a huge ditch, which dated probably to the ninth century AD. Um, mm -hmm. And um, that had then, so that had been dug and then rapidly sort of silted up and maybe even deliberately backfilled. Um, and then in the 11th century, the same ditch was then redug and a stone wall built at the base of it. So almost like a ha ha. Oh. Um, so, yeah, I think it acted like a ha ha to stop stock coming down off the hill into basically what would have been the village behind it. Right, okay. Um, and um, that boundary is still respected today. So, in the 9th century, Gosh. the idea was again that um, Iona was very, very um, popular at that point in the ninth century. You know, it had this history yeah. of, the, you know, um, St. Columba and the Saints and things, and um, yeah. local kings were wanting to be buried there and things. So there was a real yeah. thing of pilgrimage, going, you know, already pilgrimage was quite important going to Iona. So um, Glasgow um, University been working on the, sort of around the Abbey area, and they think there was a sort of a building phase in the ninth, 10th century um, so the sort of monumentalization of the of the of the um, the monastery at that period. So there's a lot mm -hmm. more ditches and banks being built as mm. as sort of um, a reaction to it becoming a more popular place. Yes. So yeah. it could be that the ditch we had there is an you know an extension of the monastic ground and enclosing it coming all the way down down through the school. Um, mm -hmm. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, but again, oh. at the base of the ditch, underneath in the gravels at the base of the ditch, we've got Mesolithic stuff. Um, oh, amazing! Gosh. So you know, you've got folk basically using that land. We also got in the in the garden ground. Um, mm -hmm. We had um, what are called ard marks, where basically um, the, the soil had been ploughed, and the furrows left in the ground. Um, you know, by um, would have been oxen, some sort of oxen and, and yeah. um, horse. Um, a drawn plough, um, and they the soil there, the charcoal dated to the Bronze Age, so it was obviously being farmed in the Bronze Age. Goodness me! So under the school, you know, you've got Mesolithic stuff, you've got Bronze Age stuff, um, you've got this early Christian stuff, medieval stuff. Yeah. You know, and then we actually on top of all that, you've got these 16th, 17th century midden material. So oh, fantastic! And then we got a 15th century cross. Just in, uh, in the topsoil as well, a decorated cross. So that was amazing. Goodness me, can you describe the cross? What was it like? It's, what is it like? It's, um, it's got sort of like um, tendril um, decoration on it, like leaves and, and intertwined tendrils. Um, Goodness me. And the arms are missing and the back, uh -huh. the expert, um, um, I think... Um, um, what's his name? Caldwell. He looked at he looked at the um, did the analysis for us. David, right. that's his first name. David Caldwell, and he right. thinks the back has been sliced off, um, but we've still got the front surviving, and um, it's definitely part of an, uh, of, of a cross. Um, and it's very similar to stuff that's in the abbey and also in the museum. So it probably dates to fifteenth fifteenth century. Um, but apparently there were about 360 crosses on Iona before the Reformation, and all but two of them got destroyed after, or you know, during the Reformation, after Reformation. Goodness, and that destruction. What? Yeah. What? Um, is there any record of of people coming and doing that, or is it just it's all gone and that's from that period? Yeah, I think I don't know if the records are such, but I think. Yeah. 
there's known that, that you know basically they all seem to have disappeared at that point in time i mean this one we found was incredibly crisp and <laughs> it looks to me as if somebody's had it squirreled away in the house yeah. And then I don't know why it ended up being dumped on the school site, but it did in relatively yeah. recent times. It's odd, odd. Yeah. <laughs> this, that is, well, that, talking of squirreling things away, one of the things that's always kind of haunted me um, ever since visiting Iona as a child or a teenager, really, is the sense uh, of the Vikings having been there and the brutality of the Vikings. Is there any evidence of, of Viking stuff at all around in Iona and, and Mull that you know of? Yeah, there's. Um, a couple of um, metal pins have been found fairly recently on um, Iona with work guard. Um, they're an archaeology company. They they did the um, the new housing site, um, mm-hmm. and I think they found one a, a pin decorated metal pin, which is Viking. And I think they also got another one where they were doing a watch and brief on work around the abbey in the topsoil. Um, um, but the Viking. I think the Vikings are very difficult, which again is another reason to come back to Leffin, why I'm quite excited about Leffin. The Vikings yeah. seem to build in timber and turf, so yeah. we don't have any houses, really. Um, at Ballasgate, we got a 10th century um, stone and turf building, which is mm-hmm. the Norse period, Viking period. Um, mm-hmm. So that's quite exciting that we've got something from that, that age at Ballasgate. Mm. And at Leffin, we've just found... Um, a bone cone oh wow which dates stylistically probably to the 10th century and could even be viking itself so amazing we're excited about that as well i think if i remember rightly there's also a um a potential longhouse uh, at langamal down uh, towards the shore there and hidden behind in the dunes there's this kind of there's a footprint of something which could be a longhouse yeah. um, thought as well so yeah um, yeah i mean with all these things they need digging and dating really you know so you, yeah. you dig them and, and made a carbon date i i I, yeah. I think dating stuff from surface evidence in argyle it's a bit like the pottery mm-hmm. the way things are built and the way the pottery is made handmade pottery you could pick up a piece of RNA's pottery and 16th century pottery made in Argyle and they look exactly the same. Goodness. So, I mean, the pottery experts hate, hate it because, you know, you ask what makes that and they're like, totally. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> that's very stressful. A lot, a lot of the structures, you know, there's a good way of building, so why change it? So, you, you know, you could do it in the Viking period, you could do it in the prehistoric period, you could do it sort of in the 14th, 15th century. Um, yeah. So dating stuff from the surface is really quite difficult. Totally, totally. One of the people I was talking to uh, over the last couple of days, a guy called John Mon, who lives uh, at Crogan, was saying about his uh, family having lived in the abandoned villages in kind of relatively recent uh, family history. Is there much work being done around the abandoned villages, which are numerous on Mull, and are there things emerging from that at all, do you know? Um Again, I think this is what Hilda and, and Beverly were originally um, involved with, is actually just doing sort of basic records of these sort of sites. Um, yes. But again, certainly from my perspective, very little gets done on them apart from like, uh, you know, that was the one the reason why it's Corninian was to record what was there. So yeah. do some photography and some basic building recording before it got destroyed. Um, but in terms of sort of tracing the, the the history, you know, the written records of these sites, 
I, I think it's, it's down to individuals or individual groups and things that do that. Yeah. And, and I'm not aware that there's a sort of active group as such. I mean, obviously, there's the Kilda V yeah. excavation. Yes, whose report came out uh, yesterday yeah. or the day before. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's centred on that kind of thing. And, and you oh. know, um, that's great because it doesn't generally, well, it is getting more common now. Well, I don't want to keep you much longer, um, but it just because well, I can tell there's so much that we could talk about. We could definitely catch up again at some point if that was okay. But um, what I would like to know is kind of um, a couple of personal kind of takes on things. First of which would be, um, what is there any um, one site that you say would say throughout Argyllshire that's been your favourite site so far? Um, oh, throughout Argyllshire. Well, do you know what? I think this Leffin site that we're gonna we're gonna I'm plugging at the moment, trying to get funding for it. I actually think we've got, I think we have a 13th, 14th century building there that may or may not be a chapel, enclosed chapel. But we've now got potentially Viking stuff underneath coming from a hearth. Um, We might have a Viking period building underneath that. So for me, currently, um, that's a pretty exciting site. So I'm quite keen on that at the moment. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the other thing I want to know is uh, sort of the Indiana Jones question: Is there uh, any one specific thing that you're always hoping to find? Is one day you know when you go into work, you think, oh, maybe today I'll find the gold doubloon or, or whatever. But is there something specific that you would love to to unearth for the first time in, in millennia? Oh, I think something like a gold torque or something like that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be amazing <laughs> to find treasure. I've never found treasure. So, um, <laughs> yes, a, yeah. a nice gold torque and a burial, that would be lovely. But, yes, I think um might have to wait a long time for that. <laughs> well, it's been it's in the ground there waiting for you. That's the thing. So. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Claire. I really, really appreciate that. That's absolutely fascinating. And, uh, yeah, uh, I'll look forward to speaking to you again soon. Yeah, thanks very much then. Brilliant. All right, cheers. cheers thanks, thank you. Bye. Bye. I'm utterly delighted that Claire took the time to talk to me, so thank you again, Claire. That was very, very much appreciated. Maybe at some point in the future we could do a live session with Claire where she's back for the dig at Leffin that she talks about, and we could maybe see if we can draw another couple of folk and we could have a chat all together for the podcast. Anyway, I'm currently in Harris, as I said earlier on, and I'm sitting in the Hotel Hebrides where I've been for the last couple of days. Really nice if you find yourself up this way. The food is the food is lovely, the rooms are very nice, and it's very comfortable not really had a chance to explore Harris before and it's rapidly become one of my favourite islands. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. And uh, went up to Scalpe as well and was impressed by how populous it is. There's so many people there. <laughs> Over the last couple of days I've caught up with friends and Lewis as well, which was wonderful to see them. So yeah, it's, it's been brilliant to be in this part of the world. As these podcasts take quite a long time to make, I'm looking to fundraise through donations. So if you feel like it and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee or even a flat sausage roll, wherever you may be, through the website. You'll see a donate tab there through which you can donate if you so wished. But don't worry if you can't or don't want to. I'd much rather you listened than didn't. And if you wanted to leave a rating or review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast on, please feel free. Thank you very much for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. All the very best. Morning, thank you.